Hey everyone, welcome to episode 8 of Kingdom Hearts and Other Stuff, or Chaos for short. I'm your host, Zach Lyons, and I don't have a guest today. Because of this, I thought I'd try something a bit different. Last year, well before Chaos had even formed as an idea in my head, I was but a humble, recurring guest on the Super Nerd Pals podcast. Stan was able to procure a review copy of the Boss Fight book's published title, Kingdom Hearts 2, by Alexa Ray Correa, for the show, and he passed it on to me. On episode 120, I guessed it again to review the book, which chronicles the events of Kingdom Hearts 2 and adds insight and in-depth explanations to not just that title, but the series as a whole. If you want to hear my Nerd Pals review, I'll leave a link to episode 120 in the show notes, but today I thought I'd do something a bit different, uh, like, like a bit of a Kingdom Hearts book club breakdown of Alexa's exceptional recap and analysis. I'll be reading some of the excerpts from the book and adding my own commentary, as well as throwing in my two cents where I might agree or disagree with what she said. So without further ado, there's a lot to cover here, so let's jump straight into it. Alexa's book is broken down into nearly a dozen chapters that cover the most vital topics surrounding Kingdom Hearts 2, including an explanation of nobodies, King Mickey's importance and legacy, the underwhelming female representation throughout the series, trying to decipher just what is Kingdom Hearts really, and so much more. In the prologue, aptly named KH Prologue 1.5 Remix, she touches on the many open threads of the series' complex story, and how series director Tetsuya Nomura did that intentionally, spurned on by his mentor. Quote, While Nomura was still developing the first game, Hironobu Sakaguchi, veteran game designer and the creator of the Final Fantasy franchise, told him that if he wanted to compete in the Japanese role-playing market, he had to make something intricate. He said, if you don't make it more complex like with Final Fantasy, you won't be able to compete. So, accordingly, I decided to develop the story in a way that fans could imagine on their own, the remaining story, how they like, Nomura explained. So most of what you see when you play a Kingdom Hearts game is Nomura's brainchild. This keeper of the keys loves leaving just enough unsaid to keep fans guessing." Unquote. While this is one thing I really love about Kingdom Hearts, it's also something I hope is addressed in Kingdom Hearts 3. While the drip feed of story and plot development over the course of many games has been excruciating as we wait for the finale, at the same time I love playing through a new game in the series and working out what threads tie together where. The guessing game is half the fun. Even better than that, it's so cool to play through a new game, plug it into the chronology where it fits, then replay an older game and realize just how much they had already foreshadowed that new game's events previously. It happens all the time in Kingdom Hearts, and so while some individual titles may feel more lackluster than others, at their core they're all vital and integral to the overall story that Nomura is trying to tell. I respect that he doesn't always want to give everything away and tie it up in a bow, because having things to speculate on and discuss with friends and fellow fans makes it all the more exciting. Later in the prologue, Alexa talks about the special connection she and her brother share with the Kingdom Hearts franchise, which I'll leave for you to read for yourself should you pick up the book in time, which you should because it's great, and she closes out that section by saying this, quote, the Kingdom Hearts series has hit me hard, pulled emotional chords I didn't know I had. This high fantasy with techno-thriller techno and kiddie cartoon elements thrown in for good measure has a place in my heart that nothing else can fill." Unquote. Uh, to some, this might sound sensationalized or cheesy or overly dramatic, but in my eyes it's not. That's just what Kingdom Hearts does to people, sometimes without realizing it. As a fan of both Disney Animation and Final Fantasy growing up, I've known since the very first game that this was something I would enjoy. And with the release of Kingdom Hearts 2, it cemented its place in my top series of all time. But <clears throat> it wasn't until just last year, at E3 2017, when I realized just how much of an impact the series has had on me. I had the privilege of attending two of the three Los Angeles performances of the Kingdom Hearts Orchestra, and the show was gobsmackingly beautiful. Like, the arrangements were superb, and you couldn't help but move the music as the symphony serenaded. As accompanying scenes from the series played during the show, it felt like the audience was able to recap and relive the entire series in a mere two hours or so, however long the show was. The way it was all put together was delightful and perfect, with small teases of new canonical dialogue peppered in to bridge the gap until Kingdom Hearts, Kingdom Hearts 3's eventual release. I had the time of my life, honestly. But what really got to me was when Yoko Shimomura, lead composer for the Kingdom Hearts original soundtrack, came on stage to perform the encore. I'm not a hyper-masculine dude, but 
I've also never been a big crier. I don't feel shame about crying and, you know, do when I need to, but I've never been one to cry at emotional movies or big deaths in video games or anything. But when Shimamura-san came on stage and started playing the instrumental version of Hikari right there in front of me, like the floodgates burst. I didn't expect it. I didn't feel it coming. It just happened. Even as I was typing up the script for this episode, just thinking about that moment, you know, I had a couple tears swelling up in the corners of my eyes. It was all kinds of beautiful, and it really drove home just how much of an emotional hold this series has on me, and I love it. But moving on, the first actual chapter of the book is called Six Days Later, An Exercise in Futility with a Boy Named Roxas, and it outlines the monotonous intro to Kingdom Hearts 2 and why that monotony was an essential and purposeful bit of storytelling. The segments I'll read next are all from this chapter, but I'll be jumping around to several bits that all talk about basically the same thing. Quote, The opening hours of Kingdom Hearts 2 are among the most tedious and aggravating hours in all of video game history. I say this not because the pacing is choppy, although it is, or because the opening fails to set the stage for the rest of the game. Kingdom Hearts 2 actually does an excellent job of introducing a character and concepts that you might dismiss on first glance, but that come back to bite you later on. The reason this opening is disastrous is that it is so purposefully boring that it has dissuaded many players from progressing further. It's a barrier to entry so high that it's sometimes the only memory people have of the game." Unquote. Quote, Here we are, primed for a sequel to Kingdom Hearts, and yet the first half dozen hours are filled with shallow drama among characters we don't know or care about. Unquote. Quote, Where the hell is Sora? Those first four hours, or six if you're a completionist, are tiresome enough to make you put the game down to make you put the game down and walk away. Unquote. And quote, our time with Roxas often feels like a waste of our time and energy, but the developers are much too clever to give you six hours of chores with a character you have no emotional stake in, and then send you on your way without a layer of payoff. And it's a big enough payoff that I'm willing to forgive these painful opening hours. Unquote. She then goes on to explain, or sorry, she goes on to complain about the boring and tedious jobs you must partake in, and brings up a point I never knew until reading it here, actually. Quote, During my first playthrough, I knew I had to get a certain amount of money for tickets, so I completed chores until I had that amount. This took me a little over an hour, and I was careful to make a little extra just in case something happened along the way. The second time I played through Roxas's segments, I only completed each chore once. And when I went to meet my friends, they had magically made up the rest of the cash. No matter what you do, no matter how good you may get at batting away garbage or poster slapping, it doesn't matter at all, just like the rest of Roxas's sham of a life, unquote. That's kind of harsh. Uh, but honestly, I never knew that you could just carry on without having earned enough money. I'm the type of gamer who sees an objective, completes it to the best of his ability, and goes to turn in the quest. If I haven't met the requirements, I figure there's no point in returning to the quest giver yet. I just take it at face value and accept that that's what needs doing. I know her point here is that Roxas's whole introduction is meaning meaningless and lame, but I kind of love that they give you the option of just breezing through the chores once and moving on. The game doesn't tell you this is an option. They leave you to figure it out on your own. And to me, that doesn't make this segment meaningless, but instead it shows that the game is letting you play it in different ways, giving you options even if they're not going to impact things later on. I like it. So as Alexa continues breaking down each of the six days with Roxas, she gets into his confrontations with Axel, and how those interactions make him confused and frustrated. Further to that, when he makes his way to the mysterious mansion at the edge of Twilight Town, where he meets Namine, and she tried to give him as much information as she can regarding what's going on. Quote, What's going to happen to me now? Roxas asks Namine. Roxas has been running from his future because he doesn't want to face his past. But would he really be happy living a lie in a computer simulation with fake friends and a fake home and no real meaningful relationships? Just tell me that, Roxas pleads. Nothing else matters anymore. All this heaviness after half a dozen hours of menial chores, again, the tone turns on a dime in an intentional emotional shakeup. As Roxas begins to wake up to his past, so too does our gameplay experience. Pay attention, the tonal shift seems to say. Here comes the juicy stuff. We're finally going to show you why we made you do chores for six hours. Unquote. 
While this isn't strictly true, as Roxas' story is continually drip-fed to us not just throughout the rest of Kingdom Hearts 2, but also in Kingdom Hearts 358 over two days, a game that released several years later, it is definitely where things start to pick up. Naomi can't provide all the answers, but no doubt she is the greatest catal catalyst to Roxas' true awakening. Quote, but as Sora's pod opens and Roxas gets a look at his face, he resigns himself to his fate. He must give up his physical autonomy and rejoin Sora in his body. It isn't death in the physical sense, but it does mean that Roxas will cease to exist as a separate entity. And then the title screen finally appears. When the cutscenes finish, we are in control of Sora. Finally. The real game, the thing we came here for, has actually begun. Why spend so much time on building up Roxas with mundane nonsense only to tear him down and fling him away to make room for Sora? As Roxas makes his journey through the old mansion on the final day, he is repeatedly told how meaningless his existence is. Naminé tells him he wasn't supposed to exist. Diz addresses him as a being less than human and tells him he's worthless. All the agency we built up with running errands and fighting off enemies is ripped away as we are told that Roxas has none. So why spend so much time in a world that isn't real? Because the mon mundane things don't matter in the grand scheme of things, and that's what Kingdom Hearts 2 wants you to know. It's a long, boring lesson in futility. You do stupid chores to earn money, only to have that money stolen. You make decisions to do right by your friends, but it turns out your friends aren't real. They don't like you for you, they like you because they are programmed that way. And you can run from the truth, but someday it will catch up and smack you to the curb. We spend six in-game days with Roxas because we, the players, are supposed to feel helpless and small. I believe this feeling of helplessness was the developer's goal. In several interviews, Nomura stated that in the absence of Sora, and as the first great emotional touchpoint for Kingdom Hearts 2, Roxas had to be tragic enough for players to latch onto and commit to the rest of the game. It was all slog through tedium for the grand reward of a slap in the face. And this hours-long drag through such uninteresting gameplay was designed to frustrate us, to turn us off, to exasperate us. When we are at our most annoyed, it hands us the moral and kicks into gear. It's jarring and a little sad, and Kingdom Hearts 2 gives you little time to let the weight of Roxas' sorrowful situation sink in before Sora, Donald, and Goofy are all dogpiling on one another, on one another and giggling. Was this exercise in boredom useful? Is the slog through Roxas' world worth it? I have two different answers for you. Yes, in that it was the best and perhaps most efficient way for you as a player to spend time with Roxas. Simply jumping into the game with Sora and learning about Roxas from flashbacks would erase the sting of Roxas' sacrifice. The kicker here is that even though Roxas is a nobody, he does have free will, and he uses it to essentially nullify himself, to give up the right to make his own choices and exist as a fully independent being by merging himself with Sora. A simple cutscene wouldn't be enough to convey this, either. We have to exist alongside Roxas, to go through boring daily life with him to understand him and see him as a person before his humanity is unceremoniously stripped away. Otherwise, no. This opening was a waste of time because the full weight of Roxas' existence isn't even fully explored until another later game. Kingdom Hearts 358 over two days, published for Nintendo DS in 2009, is the fifth Kingdom Hearts game and is set chronologically at the same time of Chain as Chain of Memories before the events of Kingdom Hearts 2. So days occurs between Kingdom Hearts 1 and 2. It delves into the lives of Roxas and Axel and offers more information on Organization 13 and Roxas' daily life there, something that honestly would have been helpful to know during, King during Roxas' struggle in Kingdom Hearts 2. But we don't get this information until far too late in a game that players might not even play the after their frustrations with this one. I argue that it would have been better to have it sooner rather than later, given the emotional weight it adds to Roxas's tale. Unquote. I know that was a lot. Sorry for that. Uh, but my thoughts are that the only part of that entire excerpt I don't agree with is Alexa's presumption that it would have been better that to have days before Kingdom Hearts 2. I mean, sure, we're thrown into Kingdom Hearts 2 without any knowledge of who this boy is or why he's important, but his story is brought to life, it brought to light in time. I would argue that 358 over two days came exactly when it should have. By the time it was released, we had defeated every member of Organization 13 throughout Kingdom Hearts 2 and knew how their stories ended, or at least it seemed so at the time. And days was more of an opportunity to not just learn about Roxas, but the rest of them as well. Spending six hours with a new character, then fleshing them out over time and growing closer to them while playing as Sora was infinitely better 
than having an entire game that focused on Roxas when we would have had zero context as to why he is, who he is, and seeing all the organization members there too when we'd only met a handful of them so far in Chain of Memories. Going back in the timeline to show us what happened with different characters in future games is just the kind of Tarantino storytelling that I love and that I'm here for. All that being said, the rest of Alexa's commentary is completely on point uh, and shows just how important those opening hours of monotony truly are to the player connecting with Roxas. An exercise in futility it may be, but it is an important exercise nevertheless. Now, just as Kingdom Hearts 2 opens with Roxas and proceeds to allude to his importance throughout the game, so too does Alexa in her book. After using the first chapter to walk the reader through uh, your time as Roxas, Later on, she brings it all back around by tying in moments from those introductory hours to where the most important in the rest of the game. The following chapter, Nobodies and Somebodies, delves into how the organization members came to be organization members, how they lost their hearts and came to follow Xemnas, and how they feel, or think they feel, or don't feel at all. Through this, she tells us, quote, The nobody who most proves his worth despite his lack of a heart is Roxas. After being deemed dangerous and trapped in a simulation to cage him, he develops his own personality, albeit a boring one, and his own emotional attachments." Unquote. Quote, After merging with Sora, as Sora bids goodbye to the inhabitants of the real Twilight Town on which the digital Twilight Town was based, a tear slides down his cheek that he can't explain. That's Roxas inside of him, crying at leaving the people he thought were his friends. But a nobody shouldn't be crying, right? Surprise, this is another secret function of your lengthy, tedious time with Roxas. Once we know he's a nobody, and Organization 13 tells us nobodies can't feel emotion, we should immediately be thinking about Kingdom, Heart two, Kingdom Hearts 2's opening hours. But nobodies can feel emotions, we should immediately be thinking, but nobodies can have hearts. Roxas should be the poster child for nobodies with emotions. But if you spent your time with him annoyed, then this may not be your first thought once you begin to unravel the mystery of the nobodies. And that's kind of what makes that whole segment with Roxas more beautiful, more powerful. You may have put these opening hours out of your mind so completely that this revelation that nobodies aren't empty shells really sneaks up on you." Unquote. As I said before, this is just one of the subtle ways you drip-fed more of Roxas's story in depth. A single tear. It is sad and poignant and just a great juxtaposition to Sora's happy, smiling face. And as Alexa pointed out, it's an excellent way of making those opening hours more important than you may have initially thought. The concept of nobodies in general is a point that stuck with many fans of the series. Leading into a deeper look at nobodies, Alexa eloquently states, quote, Without a heart, without love, without purpose, and without meaning in your life, you might as well be nothing and it may compel you to do nefarious things. Being half a human being, empty but alive, is preferable to being nothing." Unquote. In the context of Kingdom Hearts, this passage makes sense as you think about the members of Organization 13. Even if you have never played or even heard of these games, however, it's still a point that might resonate with people who suffer from depression or anxiety or other mental disabilities. Quote, as Sora meets more of the organization and faces them in combat, as he looks into their eyes and asks them what they want out of their battle, in his infinite well of kindness he realizes these people aren't ghosts, they're just lost. The beauty of nobodies is that they can actually become anything they want. In a way, nobodies are blessed with greater agency and free will than anyone else in the Kingdom Hearts universe, because they have the inner space and capability to become someone new. Maybe someone better. Nobodies call themselves nobodies because they believe themselves to be. But there is always hope. In sadness, we become nobodies. And we feel we can only become somebodies again when that pain is mended and that void is filled. Nobodies are vulnerable somebodies, just waiting for another heart to remember theirs. Unquote. I want to repeat a line of that one more time. Nobodies call themselves nobodies because they believe themselves to be. But there is always hope. This is one of my favorite lines from the whole book. Again, it fits into the Kingdom Hearts narrative, but it is equally applicable in real life. Uh, every single one of us knows a nobody who thinks themselves worthless and undeserving, and odds are high that many of us have seen, have been that nobody, or even currently are one. But just as it's true in the games, there is hope for every single nobody out there. 
The journey to becoming who or what you want won't always be easy. In fact, it rarely is. But you can make your own path through the darkness and become someone new. Maybe someone better. Truly, I think these are words to take to heart. One of the major points Alexa emphasizes throughout her book is how Sora isn't actually the main character of the Kingdom Hearts series, so much as a vessel through which we watch the true pro protagonist unfold and grow, Riku. She most explores this in the next chapter, titled Riku and Redemption, or What Doesn't Kill You. She doesn't just allude to this, but rather outright states it. Quote, While Sora may be the protagonist of these early games, the Kingdom Hearts series is actually Riku's story as seen from the eyes of Sora. In games as early as Chain of Memories, players get brief moments playing from the perspective of Riku, who is most of the reason Sora is flitting between worlds in the first place." Unquote. Now, if I recall correctly, Nomura has actually stated in the past that Riku is his favorite character, even more so than Sora, so whether it was intentional or not, the logic of Riku being the true main character is sound. After all, though he ends up a bit of a baddie in the first game, he spends each and every title from then on trying to overcome the darkness within him, while Sora continues being the happy-go-lucky dude that he always is. I mean, sure, Sora gets sad and mopey, but he's still basically the physical embodiment of pure light throughout Kingdom Hearts, and that really doesn't change much at all. At least, it hasn't yet. Meanwhile, Riku undergoes change after change after change, both physically and mentally. Uh, to give readers a bit of background recap on Riku, Alexa reminds us of his primary arc through the first Kingdom Hearts game. Quote, Riku, now out on his own, agrees to help the witch Maleficent of Sleeping Beauty fame to do terrible things. She tells him she can help him find Kyrie and get stronger, and he believes her, only to fall totally to darkness. Under her watch, Riku becomes possessed by Ansem, Seeker of Darkness, the demonic spirit Sora and friends are fighting against. This Ansem, you'll recall, is the heartless of the young man, Xehanort, who split himself in a lab experiment when he extracted his own heart. This Xehanort was also not what he seems. He was actually the spirit of old Master Xehanort inside the body of Terra, the young man who granted Riku his Keyblade powers. So Ansem, in possession of Riku's body, is the ghost of a spirit who came from a body it was possessing. If this convoluted chain of body possession sounds absurd, that's because it is." Unquote. Reading this for the first time actually made me laugh out loud. For how much I love the Kingdom Hearts series, it is impossible not to poke fun at the absolute ridiculousness of some of these retcons. And I call this a retcon because I just find it too far-fetched that Nomura would have had all these possessions and versions of Xehanort mapped out from the get-go. I reckon by the time Kingdom Hearts 2 came around, he had a much better grasp on the entire story he wanted to tell, but to think that he had that kind of convolution in mind from the starting line is insanity. I mean, I suppose it's not entirely unthinkable for Nomura, given all the other convolutions in the story, but still, reading that paragraph about who is really possessing Riku with no prior knowledge of Kingdom Hearts, it sounds like incoherent nonsense. I mean, honestly, as an avid fan of the series since day one, it still sounds like incoherent nonsense, but it's fun. But uh, getting back on track, Riku is much like Roxas in that he has a lot of issues to work out, and his character develops the best once he accepts his problems and tries to better himself. The following excerpts are all from various points in the Riku chapter, but they all echo this point. Quote 1. Sora may be the one with the Keyblade, but it's Riku who has suffered, struggled, fallen, and has gotten back up, and is now on a journey to discover his potential and accept who he is. Sora, on the other hand, has remained static in demeanor and conviction up to this point. Sora is unchanging. Riku is always growing. Quote 2. Riku learns something that is difficult for many to accept. You don't have to be perfect. You don't have to be saintly, and a few bad or selfish choices don't make you evil. You are not weak for feeling doubt or thinking dark thoughts. You are only bad if you let that darkness harm others. Quote 3. After falling from grace and being possessed by Ansem, Riku struggles to come to terms with his darkness and the burden of responsibility that comes with it. Riku returns to the world not necessarily a better person, but a wiser one. Quote 4. Against all possible or against impossible odds, Riku wins by accepting defeat. In ceasing his struggle against darkness, he emerges victorious. 
by accepting what was broken within him, his brokenness becomes his greatest strength. Riku shows how we learn from mistakes, and that failure should not be treated as the end. It's a lesson, maybe the greatest lesson, video games have always been trying to teach us. Failure is how we learn. Unquote. Once again, Alexa just has such a way of opening my eyes to realizations I never thought of previously. I've been playing video games for nearly the entirety of my 31 years on this earth. No matter the genre, RPG, platformer, puzzle, strategy, shooter, they all have elements of trial and error. When you reach the first when you first reach Bowser in Super Mario Brothers, you don't know how to win the fight. Up until that point, you can basically jump on any enemy or sling some fireballs to take him down. But if you jump on Bowser, you'll quickly learn his spiny shells more than you can handle. And since he's literally breathing fire at you, your flower power is basically ineffective as well. After a few deaths and new approaches, you'll probably figure out that you need to jump past him and grab the key, which pulls the metaphorical carpet out from under his feet and causes him to tumble into the fire pit below. It might take a few tries, but you get there. You work it out. In Final Fantasy, if you attack an enemy in a snowy area with blizzard, mag with blizzard magic, it absorbs the damage and is healed. You learn not to do that again. In Left 4 Dead, you approach the sobbing and distressed woman in the streets only once, because after that you learn what witches are, and that they should be avoided all at all costs. You fail, you learn, and you try again until you get it right. The adage, if at first you don't succeed, try, try again, is as old as time, but even still, it's a practice I implement much more frequently in video games than in real life. But after reading it in a different perspective Alexa presented, it clicked on a whole new level for me. It's funny how all it takes is a different perspective sometimes to really drive home something you've actually known your entire life. But anyway, I've droned on about how great the character arcs are for Riku and Roxas, and it's time to do a 180 and lament the, frankly, pitiful representation of females in Kingdom Hearts 2 with the chapter called Gone Girl. After noting how two of the already paltry number of females in the series are gotten rid of in the same game they were introduced, Larxene and Xion and Chain of Memories in 358 over two days respectively, Alexa gets right to the heart of the matter. Quote 1. The only two women of any importance in Kingdom Hearts 2 are Kyrie and her nobody, Namine. Both find themselves damseled repeatedly throughout the game, shunted from one male captor to a subplot designed to get them from point A to point B with minimal attention. Quote 2. Kyrie changes hands five times, from the Twilight Town gang, to Axel, to Sykes, to Namine, to Riku and Sora. She's left in others' care one more time after all that. As Sora and Riku confront Xemnas, she stays behind with Donald and Goofy. Her only on-screen appearances feature her running away or being captured, with only one brief instance of her engaging in combat, getting in a quick few hits with a keyblade. And when Donald compliments her prowess, she responds by flipping her hair and giggling. Quote 3. She is the obligatory female companion until she suddenly needs to be the catalyst for Sora and Riku's reunion. Unquote. Alexa pulls no punches when it comes to her dislike of Kyrie's treatment in not just Kingdom Hearts 2, but the series overall, and there's really no debating the points she makes. Kyrie has scant few moments in Kingdom Hearts 1's opening with Sora and Riku before becoming a mute puppet for both the boys to chase after for nearly the entire rest of the game. Then, even after showing she can fight a bit in Kingdom Hearts 2, she's largely ignored in every subsequent title. Until 2017's prologue to Kingdom Hearts 3, all of her post-Kingdom Hearts 2 appearances are literally tacked on to the end. She's a footnote to the stories, an unlockable cutscene with little to no dialogue that always alludes to her importance without actually ever proving it. Uh, big things have been teased for her inclusion in Kingdom Hearts 3, and ever the optimist, I'm hopeful that she finally gets her time to shine for real in the long-awaited finale, but man, it's, it's actually a huge bummer how little of a role she plays in Kingdom Hearts 2. Namine, on the other hand, is a bit more complex. In Alexis' words, quote, Namine is an improvement on Kyrie, the typical tropey leading lady who fails the Bechdel test as soon as she opens her mouth. Namine doesn't pass the test either, but she at least takes action of her own accord. In the same way Riku is the more complex and interesting protagonist than Sora, Namine is the more interesting version of Kyrie due to her courageous exercising of her free will. Quote 2. As with Kyrie, ownership of Namine rapidly changes in the first few hours of Kingdom Hearts 2. She is passively handed around by men who have no idea what to do with her. When we see Namine later in the game, she is not with Axel, so we can assume Axel simply let her go. 
This is opposite of Kyrie's situation, where the men around her see value in owning her and therefore fight to possess her. Naomi instead is unwanted and thought unimportant, though her power has been instrumental to the plot. She is discounted by the men around her, but she chooses to value herself despite this. Unquote. That last line is so, so important. Allow me to repeat it. She is discounted by the men around her, but she chooses to value herself despite this. Just like how Roxas' struggle with being a nobody parallels real everyday people who struggle with their sense of worth, so too does this sentiment about Naminé. Too many women in the real world are constantly and consistently being taken for granted by their male counterparts. The gender wage gap is lessened in recent years, but still persists to an unacceptable degree. Uh, women are degraded, shamed, threatened, and talked down to by ignorant men who cannot fathom or accept how worthwhile and important they really are. Naminé is literally one of the most powerful characters in the entire Kingdom Hearts mythos, and yet no one really cares. Nevertheless, she persists and continues down her own path, doing what she believes is right in spite of everyone passing her by and pushing her aside. She knows her worth, and that's more important than what any man thinks. Alexa continues her mild praise of Naminé when compared to Kyrie by saying, quote, There's something to be said about the nobody, the literal counterpart of the blandest, most uninteresting character in the series, becoming the one woman who makes the most difference. Perhaps Naminé's actions, in light of Kyrie's lameness, are a commentary on agency, that we all have it, and we just have to take a deep breath and make our choices. Neither Kyrie nor Naminé ever seems to grow, ever seems to show genuine fear, but it is only Naminé that puts her desires into action. In a way, we can imagine Naminé as the kind as the woman Kyrie might secretly want to be. Unquote. I really love this idea that Naminé is the kind of woman Kyrie wants to be, and hearkening back to what I said before, I hope that's the direction Nomura takes with Kyrie in Kingdom Hearts 3. We know she's been intensively training with the Keyblade together with Axel during their time since Dream Drop Distance, and her outfit certainly, her outfit in Kingdom Hearts 3, certainly looks more in line with Sora and Riku's combat-ready attire, so all signs seem to be pointing to her being more assertive, more confident, and more vital than ever before. Here's hoping, anyway. Though the final point Alexa makes doesn't excuse the overall poor female representation throughout the series, it does kind of make a lot of sense. Quote 1. It's likely that the story of Kingdom Hearts was male-centric for so long because the story Nomura's telling is that of the two boys at the game's center. Quote 2. In the end, this is Sora and Riku's story and there's no room for anyone else. Unquote. Sora and Riku have always been the primary focus of Kingdom Hearts, even when they're not playable, like in Birth by Sleep or 358 over two days. They're still at the heart of it all. Which brings us to the next chapter, Bad Romances and Rad Bromances, which, by the way, is a fantastic chapter title. Definitely my favorite. The first few pages of that chapter don't muck around, as Alexa recounts the moment late in Kingdom Hearts 2 when Sora finally sees Riku face to face for the first time since they parted ways on opposite sides of the Door to Darkness at the end of the first game. Riku still holds the visage of Ansem's Seeker of Darkness, but when Sora sees him, he knows the truth of the matter without Riku uttering a word. Quote 1 The moment Kairi speaks Riku's name, Sora's face twists, displaying a confusion and pain we haven't seen before. Kairi beckons Sora forward and takes his hand, placing it on Riku Ansem's. A slow, almost mournful song plays in the background as Sora closes his eyes and looks past Ansem guys to Riku, the friend he has been so desperately searching for. Taking Riku's hand in both of his, Sora falls to his knees. It's Riku! Riku's here! he cries, weeping and visibly shaking. I looked for you! I looked everywhere for you! Quote 2 Sora and Riku's reunion is the big emotional payoff in Kingdom Hearts 2, while meeting up with Kairi doesn't even get a fraction of this attention. That's because there's no traditional romance in Kingdom Hearts. Rather, we get a picture of intimacy between two young men, two best friends. It's exceedingly rare that any kind of media portrays non-romantic love between two boys so deeply. Too often this kind of bond is dismissed as sexual or nothing at all. But Kingdom Hearts excels at painting that picture." Unquote. When I first played Kingdom Hearts 2 as a teenager, I admit that I had a bit of a laugh when how 
when Sora and Kyrie were reunited, they shared a happy little hug. But when Sora and Riku were back together, it was like finding out a dead relative was alive the whole time. Like he had a, such a breakdown. At the time, it felt a bit ridiculous. But at the time, I also hadn't been nearly as enlightened to the idea of non-toxic masculinity. Uh, to my immature teenage mind, Sora should have been much more excited to be back together with his quote-unquote girlfriend than his buddy Riku. I'd like to think I've grown over the years, though, and these days I can appreciate the boys' relationship for what it is. Again, Alexis says it all much more eloquently than I could, and for that I thank her. Suffice it to say, it is entirely possible for two people, be they both male, both female, or each any other gender, to have a close, intimate relationship without being coupled together as romantic partners. This is a portrayal of close friendship in media that has aged incredibly well over the last decade, and I imagine it'll only continue to hold up as time goes on and people are more open to the idea that men can be close and emotional together without it being anything more. But Sora and Riku aren't the only two guys in this game who are incredibly close like that, lest we forget our favorite nobodies, Axel and Roxas. Quote 1. Throughout Kingdom Hearts 2, we see the same flashback a handful of times, Roxas walking away from Axel, saying, no one would miss me. That's not true, Axel shouts behind him, then drops his voice to a murmur. I would. Quote 2. When we reach Roxas's flashbacks of Axel pleading with him not to leave the organization, we hear the sorrow in the latter's voice as he says he'll miss Roxas. Counter to everything the organization has been led to believe, Roxas inspires true emotion in Axel. Friendship, sorrow, understanding, compassion, love. Quote 3. As Sora, Donald, Goofy, and Axel travel in the corridors of darkness, the spaces through which you move between worlds, they are attacked on their way to the world that never was. The number of nobodies that descend on the group is so overwhelming that Sora can't beat them back. To save Sora and clear a path for the trio to escape, Axel uses up his life energy in one final attack that destroys all of the enemies. Quote 4. With his dying breath, Axel tells Sora how much Roxas meant to him. I want to see Roxas, Axis rasps. Axis? Axel. Axel rasps. He was the only one I liked. He made me feel like I had a heart. It's kind of funny. You make me feel the same. We see Axel one more time in Kingdom Hearts 2, in some sort of afterlife or dream space, sitting on top of the Twilight Town clock tower with Roxas. Axel knows this is the last time he'll ever see Roxas as Roxas, and as he says goodbye, he sheds a single tear. This is the only time we see Axel cry, and the second time any of the characters original to the Kingdom Hearts series cry in the game. Sora crying for Riku, Axel crying for Roxas. The boys are only the only ones who cry because their vulnerability is tied up with their dependence on each other. These are believable relationships. These are the characters whose relationships players are never supposed to doubt. The emotion is raw and crystal, crystal clear in both of these scenes. We never see this level of emotion, of emotion in Sora's reunion with Kairi. It just isn't there. Unquote. It is super interesting that Nomura chose to highlight Axel and Roxas's relationship in addition to Sora and Riku's. If he wanted to include more than one main relationship to go all in on, the more obvious and arguably boring route would have been Sora and Kairi. For one, because Sora is the quote main character unquote, so showing his so spotlighting his best friend and his main romantic interest would make a lot of sense. And for two, because the two of them getting together eventually has been vaguely alluded to since the beginning of the series, even if it has taken a back seat in recent entries. It makes the commitment to Roxas and Axel's friendship all the more meaningful to focus on, especially since they're both nobodies with, allegedly, no hearts or ability to feel such emotions. It's all incredibly well done, honestly. Even in 358 over two days, when the two of them also have a Kyrie counterpart in Xion, the relationships are all purely platonic. Roxas considers both Axel and Xion to be his best friends, and the same is true all the way around. Even when Xion disappears and is forgotten by everybody, the bonds between Axel and Roxas remain ever intact, regardless of Roxas's forgotten memories at Kingdom Hearts 2's beginning. To wrap up the chapter, Alexa comments on the end of the game, post-Zemnis boss battle, when Sora and Riku share a candid and open moment on the sullen beach in the Realm of Darkness. Quote, While Riku and Sora are not in love, the boys' friendship is one of the deepest and most moving relationships of any kind that I've seen in any video game. 
and part of why it works is because it's not a romance. Without sexual tension or expressed desire of any kind, these relationships appear as the deepest forms of male intimacy, intimacy mutual dependence, connectedness, and respect." Unquote. Hear, hear. Changing tack a bit, the next chapter, called Long Live the King, talks all about Mickey Mouse, his importance to Disney, the care Square Enix had to take with his character, and how he became how he came to be the king of the entire Kingdom Hearts universe. Quote, Mickey's role as a king is not all just in name. His first appearance in Kingdom Hearts 2 is in Twilight Town, just as Sora, Donald, and Goofy are overwhelmed by nobodies. Mickey, hooded and cloaked in black, drops in out of nowhere, swatting away a nobody with each hit. The music cuts out, the camera focuses on Mickey's keyblade, and then cuts to our trio of heroes, all on the ground, mouths agape, staring at Mickey as though they've seen a ghost. Your Majesty? Donald ventures. Mickey shushes Donald and tells the group they have to leave Twilight Town. Then Mickey runs away. Not once does Mickey show his face, and although the player knows exactly who the little hooded figure is, his hiddenness serves to shroud his appearance in mystery. It is exciting to catch a glimpse of Mickey, who has been physically absent from Sora's storyline, but a benevolent force working behind the scenes to protect him." Unquote. I love, love, love this scene for multiple reasons. Having only actually seen Mickey in a single scene during the finale of the first game, and having a tertiary role alongside Riku and Chain of Memories, this was Mickey's first real chance to shine and impress in the series, and man, what an entrance it was. He's That he's an iconic cartoon mouse with a squeaky, high-pitched voice didn't take away from the gravitas he exuded in that scene. He saved the day, told the crew to keep a low profile, and booked it out of there before anyone had time to react. It was incredible. And as a side note, Nomura has openly stated that Star Wars was a large influence on him before when crafting Kingdom Hearts, and it's easy to draw comparisons between the two properties. In this instance, the first time I played through Kingdom Hearts 2 in 2005, all I could think of when Mickey flipped in and kicked butt was Yoda in Star Wars Attack of the Clones, which, incidentally, just happened to release three years prior to Kingdom Hearts 2's launch, when they probably would have been well into development. Uh, flipping around all crazy and taking all kinds of names. That scene was equally entertaining and exhilarating for me at the time, so at this point, Mickey Mouse had become what I never thought, or what I never would have expected, a complete and utter badass. But being a wicked cool fighter isn't enough to make one a king. Quote, Mickey is the king of the Kingdom Hearts franchise because, as the Walt Disney Company's golden child, any other position would be beneath him. He couldn't function the same role as Donald and Goofy, trotting after Sora as dutiful companions, because Mickey is not a companion, he is a leader. It would seem strange to have the most recognizable cartoon superstar on the planet following the orders of a boy just hitting puberty. Quote 2. Mickey, as he is incarnated in Kingdom Hearts, is in his purest form, selfless, smart, determined, powerful. Who else Mick but Mickey could be king? Unquote. Honestly, what more is there to be said on the matter? That's like the chapter title said, Long Live the King. He's more than earned it. But with Mickey Mouse as king of the known Kingdom Hearts universe, and with a smattering of over 100 Disney characters spread throughout the game, uh, not to mention the ages 10 and up rating the, ki the game was generally met with, it's easy for many to write this series off as a kid's game. In the chapter, A Kid's Game? Alexa addresses this common misconception. I don't say misconception to say that Kingdom Hearts isn't for kids, but it's complicated. After all, it's not just a Disney game, it's Disney meets Final Fantasy, which is made for some super interesting scenarios. Quote, The collision of the Disney and Final Fantasy worlds allows for some really cool things to happen. One great example, and one of my personal favorite elements of Kingdom Hearts 2, is the presence of, Kingdom of Final Fantasy X's Oron in the Underworld. Near the end of Final Fantasy X, the player learns that your best friend and mentor, Orin, was actually a ghost the entire time you've known him, having been killed defending a friend a decade earlier. In Kingdom Hearts 2, we meet Orin in the underworld from Hercules, serving as an underling to the snarky Hades. Orin befriends Sora and company during their trials, offering advice and an extra sword in the heat of battle. This is such a clever and fitting detail. Orin, who is who in his original game is constantly trying to atone for what he sees as his sins, ends up in the only real hell known to the Disney cinematic universe. It's the Final Fantasy Disney mashup at its finest. 
unquote. I agree that Orin and the Underworld was one of the best mashups in the series, much better than Cloud being a lackey for Hades in Kingdom Hearts 1 for sure. Another one that I really loved, also in Kingdom Hearts 2, is having Tron's world be inside of an actual computer in Radiant Garden, as opposed to being a world you can travel to via the gummy ships. It makes perfect sense that it would be a world inside a computer, as it is in the movie, and integrating it that way just felt right. For such an unexpected and surprising Disney property to throw in the mix, they really did a great job with it. It becomes even more entertaining when you realize the Tron computer is going to be primarily used from then on by the originally foul-mouthed Sid from Final Fantasy VII. Of course, in Kingdom Hearts, his language isn't so colorful, which is just one of the many ways that the tone of the game is a mix of both Final Fantasy and Disney. Alexa's thoughts on the matter. Quote 1. When thinking about tone, I don't think we can directly compare Kingdom Hearts to either Final Fantasy or Disney. Kingdom Hearts exists in a space between the two, overwhelmed by neither light Disney camp nor soul-crushing Final Fantasy melodrama. Kingdom Hearts is multi-layered and messy, and difficult and different fans coming at it from either the Disney or Final Fantasy camps take away varying things from it. For some, the games offer a chance to explore the fantastical worlds of childhood favorite movies. For others, it's an unpredictable, slightly trippy RPG thrill ride. Quote 2 Disney and Final Fantasy resonate with adults and children alike, and this surface-level satisfaction is, for some, enough. But for players seeking depth, there are mature themes and complex morals to chew on, and a greater difficulty than just hitting Disney characters with a stick. The level of complexity and challenge makes the game dark enough to deter it from turning into a playable bedtime story. The series borrows from Disney's darker side and implements some truly sweat-inducing gameplay challenges, Nothing your average five-year-old will have an easy time besting. Kingdom Hearts is built on the foundation of these two franchises, yet the experience the series delivers is all its own." Unquote. As is hopefully evidenced by everything I've discussed in this episode so far, there are definitely plenty of mature themes in these games, but at the same time, Sora's always cracking silly faces and hanging out with familiar-friendly faces like Winnie the Pooh and Ariel from The Little Mermaid. The way it all gels together honestly shouldn't work at all, let alone as well as it does, but somehow the minds at Disney and Square Enix managed to pull it together and make the impossible possible. It's a game that is fun and lighthearted enough to enjoy as a kid, but mature enough to still be fun with more takeaways and lessons as you get older. At the end of the day, there's still just one question that remains, and the book's final chapter asks it outright. What the hell is Kingdom Hearts anyway? To be honest, I don't have much to add to what Alexa says in this chapter. Thinking about what Kingdom Hearts truly is, in the context of the game world, always does my head in. Because of this, and since the, uh, this episode has run long enough, I'll read a few choice bits from the book and wrap things up. Quote 1. Nobody seems to agree on what Kingdom Hearts is. It's a dangerous, strange thing that characters in these games can't stop th talking about, but that no one can actually define. It drives people to madness. The good guys try to protect it by preventing the bad guys from finding it, and yet the good guys don't want to find it themselves. It's discussed as an object, a vessel of light or darkness that holds the key to attaining great power. Whatever Kingdom Hearts truly is, players are teased with glimpses of it in early in the series. Quote 2. By the end of Kingdom Hearts 2, we have come to understand that Kingdom Hearts is many things. A destination, an aspiration, a container or of immeasurable power. Uh, it is the forbidden fruit in the Garden of Eden, something to be admired and respected, but too powerful to be touched or tampered with. It is the heart of the universe from which all worlds are born, and around which everything turns, like a sun at the center of a solar system. So if Kingdom Hearts is a world, a moon, an object, a source of darkness, and people can go inside of it and replicate it, what exactly is it? Quote 3. No one heart is purely evil, and so the kingdom hearts that rests at the center of them all can't be purely evil either. But nor is it purely good. Instead, the real kingdom hearts reflects the heart of whomever is using it. In effect, it is pure, unadulterated power, an all-purpose weapon, an emotional death star with the power to destroy or protect. Quote 4. When Sora says kingdom hearts is light at the end of the first game, he is right. When Xemnas tells everyone in Kingdom Hearts 2 that his his kingdom hearts will flood the world with darkness, he is also right. It is a thing of pure, pliable power that adapts itself to the will of that who would use it, be it for love or hate, good or evil. It's a chaotic neutral, 
with the potential to turn into something much deadlier, or more wonderful. Kingdom Hearts bends its affiliation to those who seek to find and use it, and when it is not directly under someone's control, it remains neutral, maintaining the balance of light and dark. Quote 5. Kingdom Hearts itself means nothing at all, but it's the meaning characters ascribe to it that matters. And quote 6. It's the perfect expression of Nomura's goal to, quote, make something that allows people to let loose their imagination, unquote. Kingdom Hearts is uh, something that players and in-game characters alike can project their dreams onto. If we never completely find out what it is, our imaginations will forever be coming up with our own answers. And I think that's the point, unquote. Seriously, you guys, I love this book. And the epilogue-ish wrap-up, titled Coda, is just as poignant. Quote, When I played Kingdom Hearts 2 for the first time, I asked myself if I was good. And as I think about it, many years later and well into adulthood, I ask myself again. But I know now that being good is not a state you are born into. We are all nobodies, clean slates with a world of potential inside of us. It's not something you inherit. You don't enter the world as a white knight or a pure princess untouched by darkness or ill intentions. Being good is something you choose to be, and we can slip and fall into the darkness easily, but we can also come back from it." Unquote. Just like the segments about Roxas and Riku from earlier in the book, she wraps it up by reminding us that we can always choose to change and better ourselves, and it's an important lesson to remember. And with that, it is definitely time to wrap this episode up. This has been Episode 8 of Kingdom Hearts and Other Stuff. And if you've made it this far listening to me babble on by myself, I commend you, and I thank you sincerely. You can find the book Kingdom Hearts 2 by Alexa Ray Correa at bossfightbooks.com, where you can also find dozens of other books about video games, including Earthbound, Metal Gear Solid, Katamari Damacy, NBA Jam, and a lot more. Honestly, boss fight books are really awesome, and I highly recommend checking them out. You can find the show on Twitter at ChaosCast, and you can find me specifically as well at Zachary P. Lyons. That's L-Y-O-N-S. Chaos is part of the Nerd Pals Network, which you can find at nerdpals.network, and by searching for Super Nerd Pals on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. And while you're at it, why not check out the other Nerd Pals Nerd Pal Network podcasts as well? Left for Dread is about all kinds of horror media, and Super Nerd Pals covers basically anything and everything nerdy and geeky. So, thanks again for listening to my TED Talk about Kingdom Hearts 2, the book. May your heart be your guiding key.